Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by the New York Studio School. The school welcomes artists to join virtual intercession marathons this November 11th through November 15th. Rigorous and immersive, these five-day marathons meet from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern Time over the course of a weekend and present an extensive range of art-making strategies, comprehensive critiques, and inspirational discussions. Propelling artists to relate to drawing, painting, and sculpture as direct methodologies for understanding one's experience in the world, their profound impact continues far beyond each marathon's conclusion. The virtual format enables artists to join from any location. Visit nyss.org to apply today. Sound and Vision is sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden Artist Colors Incorporated became an employee-owned company in 2002, and in 2010, employees became the majority owners of the company. Despite worldwide distribution, Golden Product is still created on the grounds of the original barn in New Berlin, using the highest standards for consistency and quality. Golden constantly strives to outdo itself by operating on three principles, make the best products, provide customers with the best service, and find people who can make the first two happen. Golden makes the best art materials available from Williamsburg oil colors, core watercolors, and their vast line of acrylics. You can find them at your local art store or online at goldenpaints.com. Located in Seattle, Fulcrum Coffee Roasters seek to craft the perfect coffee. They have been roasting coffee for over 20 years. You can order their amazing coffee at fulcrumcoffee.com, enter code ALFREDSTUDIO upon checkout, and receive 20% off your order. Matt Clayberg is an artist born in Kingsville, Texas, based in San Antonio, Texas. He received his BA from the University of Virginia in 2008 and his MFA from Pratt Institute in 2015. He is represented by Paz the Butler Gallery, Barry Whistler Gallery, and Sorry We're Closed. Recent exhibitions include Good Naked Gallery in New York, Johansson Projects in California, Barry Whistler Gallery in Texas, Pazda Butler Gallery in Texas, and Sorry Were Closed in Brussels. His work has been written about in the New York Times, The Brooklyn Rail, Painting is Dead, Artsy, Vice, Make Magazine, Art Daily, New American Paintings, Blauen Art Info, Art Maze Magazine, Artillery Magazine, and Hyperallergic. His work is included in public and private collections, including the Williams College Museum of Art, the University of California Santa Barbara Museum of Art, the Old Jail Art Center, the Addison Gallery of American Art, the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston, and the National Gallery of Art. I spoke to Matt about Texas, country music, border patrol, making the shift from New York to Texas, and much more. Here's our conversation. broadband is pretty good down there <laughs> uh, actually you know we've got are you asking that because of all the military no just in, ge- in general 
Uh, this is just a, a little segue to start talking about Texas. Um, <laughs> well, we actually, so San Antonio is, among other things, a big military town. So, yeah. and, and low key, there's like a big cybersecurity component to that. So along the I-35 corridor, you've got like huge Amazon, Microsoft data collection storage facilities because uh, there's like massive internet broadband infrastructure that runs along the highway. And so they're all over there um, because there's like the lowest risk of interrupted, you know, signal or something. Right. It And it's, it's like basically a bank for information for this stuff. Yeah. Like is it a physical footprint? The, these like Microsoft and Amazon things. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like huge, you know, weird, uh, kind of generic, enormous warehouses with big parking lots. Um, it's funny. I was, this is not my normal world. Um, but I was talking to a guy who he's a dad at my kid's school and he's in, he's in parking lot asphalt and he, like he actually lays down asphalt and he was saying he was doing some big ass parking lot out, uh, out 35 and he thought it was a Microsoft location. And then we went to an Oktoberfest thing at this beer garden nearby and, uh, got, met some friend of a friend and he was like, Oh yeah, I'm in, uh, it. And then like you push a little further and he's like, I'm in cybersecurity. And I was like, Oh, so (laughs) what's the scoop on these, uh, big parking lots. And so that's the only reason I know anything about I 35 corridor Uh, broadband, whatever. That's where you got your, yeah. Normally I'm like your inside information. Normally I'm like a total, well, quasi Luddite. Like how do I pair my, Bluetooth speakers. In fact, I just got back from New York um, yesterday uh, for like a quick couple day trip. And on the way up, uh, they had the screens on the back of the airplane seat. Right. And same problem we had today. Like I didn't have the headphones with the headphone jack <laughs> and the, the airline that gave me the little like 50 cent or free packet. And uh, mm-hmm. I was watching some, I was watching Unforgiven, the Clint Eastwood nice. movie. Yeah, yeah. And it was like, it was, there's a scene with rain and dialogue and breaking glass, like really kind of opening scenes, like a terrible scene in a brothel. Um, and it was like, I can't do this for two hours. <laughs> so I spent, I was like, oh, I'll just pair my headphones with the seat back screen, which you can normally do. And I, I couldn't figure it out. Like people on either side of me are watching their movies on their, they're halfway through <laughs> watching on their AirPods. And I'm like sitting here fighting with this free thing. Um, so all to say technology is not, not my like normal mode. You can handle it, but it's not, it doesn't feel seamless. Yeah. Like I graduated from the flip phone to the iPhone. We're there, but I'm, it's not um, like my wife is also an artist and she, she works in video a lot. And so she and her collaborator are like lights out with, you know, syncing that with that and making sure that that audio 
isn't over top of this audio and that the projector is, you know, uh, married with the whatever it is. Well, you don't have to worry about it then. You got it covered. That's the best part of having a partnership is hopefully they are good at the other stuff. And I'm just a caveman smearing mud on cloth over in my space. Uh, yeah, we're just, yeah, we're just like it literally in a cave, just making pictures, cave paintings. Yeah. <laughs> scribbling. I love it because you mentioned corridor with the highway and like behind you, there's a lot of corridor looking shapes mm-hmm. and uh, caves and there, there could be some cave cave like elements to these images. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, they um, look like portals. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. I, I I find myself resisting language like windows and doors because, uh, or even portals sometimes, just because it like that's such a no duh painting trope. First, first stop. Yeah. Yeah, like this is you know the virtual window or whatever. Um, but I, at a certain point, you can't avoid it. I mean, I'm very much referencing architectural you know, motifs and there are a lot of you know windows doors building facades stages so yeah portal is i can try to resist it but they're it's all over there well they're i mean that's all paintings are like windows into a different world right yeah in a way it just has that kind of natural relationship you know Wait, so before we dive into your yeah, work... Yeah, 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 right. San Antonio is an interesting place. It, well, I don't... Actually, I don't know much about it. I mean, my knowledge of San Antonio is probably provided to me from songs by Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, if that yeah, tells you anything about my San Antonio Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a fine source for... Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. So you're, you're aware of his music? Oh, yeah. I'm, a, uh, I'm sure we'll get into it, but... Uh, yeah, I'm a big country music listener. Um, oh, so that that's root stuff then. Yeah, because San Antonio was like deep, deep country. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like Willie Nelson lived here for a bit. Everybody came through here. Um, I mean, you know, I grew up in Fort Worth, uh, but most of my family was in San Antonio. So the so that's how you ended up there. Yeah, I mean it's it's kind of a roundabout um, it's a roundabout story of where I grew up because we lived in a bunch of places, um, but you know jumping all the way to the present, San Antonio was kind of always where most of my family lived, and so uh, you know family weddings, funerals, seeing the grandparents. Uh, you know, Thanksgiving dinners, a lot of that stuff was in San Antonio. So when we were leaving, you just went through, you went through the cycle of life there pretty quickly. Yeah, <laughs> Birth, <laughs> weddings, kids, death. <laughs> all, yeah. all happens here in San Antonio. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. Um, well, I mean, San Antonio, it does have a, like the way you just described that reminded me of New Orleans a little bit. Like, you know, birth, life, death, you know, like New Orleans is one of those cities that feels animated by, or I don't know, like has some electric charge to it that is like half 
life and half death, you know? Definitely. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost like the place is bigger than than the people in a way or something. Yeah, like. or like the, the place is like a soup and there's all, all this flavor in there. And maybe part of it's like walking around above ground mausoleums and stuff. But um, I always, in New Orleans, I always get that like sort of palpable uh, sense of like the, you know, life energy, death energy kind of stuff. Um, Definitely. But uh, San Antonio, I often describe as like, the Texas version of New Orleans. I mean, it's right. like New Orleans. It's older than the country. Um, you know, a lot of the, like, you know, tons of Spanish colonial influence, which New Orleans has too, even though they're all French speakers. Um, and yeah, it's like, it feels, it feels older than other parts of the country. You know, the architectural landscape is really beautiful and it has like New Orleans, it has like a distinct cultural uh, I mean vibe is kind of a silly word, but it it has like a a brand or like a flavor that it's own like you can recognize it yeah. you know San Antonio obviously a huge um, Mexican Latin American influence in the language and the architecture and the culture and the food. Um, so growing up in other parts of Texas, you don't always get that distinct feel. So not to hate on Dallas, but somewhere like Dallas, it's just like big kind of uh, flavorless. We kind of wish we were in New York scene. Oil and American flags. It's funny because that, you know, like a Dallas feels like, America, you know what I mean? Like, like stars and bars, America or whatever, but really provincial places like New Orleans or, you know, San Antonio, that's kind of more of what America's about because it's more directly related to immigration of people from, you know, Europe or Latin America or wherever, you know what I mean? And, and it's, that's baked into the yeah, like culture people, of the town. Right. Like people showing up here from somewhere else and then letting whatever, all the trappings of the place they left sort of getting baked into the place that they landed. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of like, you know, well, I mean, I live in New York, so that's the kind of America that I'm, you know, partial to. Yeah. As opposed to the more hermetic stars and bars. <laughs> well, we, so we lived in Brooklyn for the last seven years. We just moved to San Antonio a year ago. And I, I always loved like when we first moved to New York and I didn't really know the, subway system well and i was just riding my bike a lot uh you're like riding through brooklyn neighborhoods and it's like english 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 with a different accent yiddish 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 polish polish you know like uh you know you're like going through these different uh like settlements almost yeah it's it is kind of fractured in that sense of like you know I was talking to someone yesterday about the fact that, like, where I grew up in Pittsburgh, there was a very large Polish community oh, really? and a very large Jewish community. And I live in East Williamsburg, and I'm often in, you know, Greenpoint and exactly. South Williamsburg. So it's like the same kind of thing from when I grew up, the same sort of like ethnic groups, you know, yeah. and Italian Americans too. So it's like, you know, 
it's interesting how those pockets exist. We saw some really fun shows at um, the Warsaw. Oh, yeah, yeah, in Greenpoint. And then, like, during the break between sets, you go over and there's, like, I don't even know what they call them, the, a bunch of different, like, Polish snacks. Pierogies and stuff, yeah. Yeah, I guess pierogies and other things. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 cool. It's like a funny connection. My I did visuals like motion graphic visuals during a set of my friend's show and backstage is like upstairs a floor at Warsaw and it's like just the most old rooms. Like it felt like those old houses my friends grew up in Pittsburgh, like on the south side where yeah. it's just, you know like that kind of feel. Carpet cool. I can't place where the yeah. smells from, but it's been there for Yeah, just like hundred years baked in old people smell <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> lots of car yeah it was like green carpet uh-huh. furniture that all looks like it should be in a garage sale at any given moment yeah it's pretty great yeah yeah posters yeah. from like you know polish uh like uh polka performances <laughs> totally. from the 50s <laughs> totally yeah <laughs> it's pretty good stuff yeah does san antonio have that kind of feel like is it you know do you have a connection in the city to that that older era of music and culture or has it pretty much been modified and, you know, modernized? Um, do you mean, do you mean like, like a predominantly Hispanic culture and flavor? Um, or, or no, you, like the old music, the old music and culture, you know, cause there's, cause there's like, I like, like, well, cause like you've got, um, I mean, being this close to Mexico, you do have, uh, you know, you are driving around town, like hearing like mariachi music. Yeah. As you go through, you know, you go down some drag and, you know, people are just like blasting great music. But then San Antonio also, the reason I asked is because San Antonio also has this like kind of like, metal scene or it has long had this metal scene um nice and i can't speak to you know how much that's alive and well uh but that's a part of the city too i mean there's some really like really important guns and roses live recordings that came out of san antonio and my my studio is near the alamo dome which is uh it's no longer where the Spurs play, but it's still a big concert arena. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> like the last few shows have been uh, Rumstein, Motley Crue, Joan Jett, <laughs> Def Leppard, uh, Poison, and now maybe I'm just making it up. But uh, Cinderella. Like I took I took my son, our oldest son, to uh, Monster Jam a couple months nice. ago, and so yeah, there's this like kind of like metal metal head vibe in the city and that's still, I like the that's still I like the dynamic between metal and mariachi <laughs> for like, sure you know there's different poles here that you could gravitate towards is the food i would imagine if good food too with that influence like the mexican there's food. a pretty killer food scene i mean oh man no question it's the best mexican food around i mean tex-mex yeah. in particular uh but and you know, you, along with that, you know, now the I'm a really I really like mezcal, and the mezcal scene in town is 
really killer. Um, but the food scene in general, like I showed up from Brooklyn unintentionally pretty snobby. Right. Um, and we still haven't yeah. found like a really good Thai place or a really good Indian place. But in general, there's some people here doing pretty cool, pretty cool food things. Um, yeah. And it's not all, I mean, there is some like chefs coming back and doing some really wild, uh, super sophisticated innovation with Mexican food. Like Michli is this restaurant that's gotten a bunch of buzz and, um, there's, it, there's some stuff happening. San Antonio has this feel, uh, did you ever spend time in Austin? I haven't actually, I, you know, I've only passed through Austin. So and for some reason, when I was at a band and we played, we never played Austin really. I don't think. Really? So yeah, we, I never got to spend time there. Did you ever play San Antonio? Did you ever play like the Lonesome Rose or anything? No, we, we drove through, like our tour was always kind of like frenetically getting to, from Phoenix and, you know, like New Mexico and Arizona to uh, New Orleans. So for some oh, reason, cool. Texas just got the shaft. Maybe we just didn't have a good booking there or something, but I do yeah. remember driving near the border and that was creepy because we had a dog searching our van and, yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> right. it got a little like, whoa, this is serious. When you're young, you know, yeah. like what the hell's going on here? Yeah. Everyone in the car is an American citizen and the guy says, American citizens. And all of a sudden, everyone right. gets real nervous. Like, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Play it cool. Yeah, you get all stiff. <laughs> yeah. Then. I've spent a bunch of time down in South Texas. And part of the area that I spent a lot of time in, you you it's down Highway 77. And you drive past a border check going down. And then on your way back, you have to go through um, the checkpoint and do the whole roll the window down. Dog goes around the car. And um you know, there's been time like everyone in the back seat is drinking a margarita, which is not what they're <laughs> patrolling. You know, they're like, right. They want to make sure you don't have, you know, a hundred pounds of weed or something. <laughs> like, right. You know, that's, that's not what they're looking for, but everyone guns that, and drugs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But everyone gets that kind of like stiff back, like everything's cool. We were just doing our homework. Uh, you know? <laughs> well growing up i mean so was your family in the military is that why you were moving you said you moved around a lot yeah no not really no military um i mean some cousins and stuff but um just fans of moving so uh i was born in south 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 texas um like south of corpus christi and my dad worked for a cattle ranch he was, I mean, it's moving to New York later on and people hear you from Texas are like, oh, did you ride a horse to school? Like, no, right. but unfortunately, yeah, like my dad was a cowboy. <laughs> he actually did. <laughs> he actually did. You know, so um, he worked for this ranch and um I was born down there. My sister was born down there in Kingsville and lived there until we were, until I was like three. And then the ranch had a division in Australia. Like it had a, you know, a, another property in Australia. And so they asked my dad to move out there. Um, and so we moved to Sydney and lived there for a year. 
and then they that's a shift quite a shift yeah um so i did you know a year of preschool out there had a friend named angus and then they sold that property and so my at that point my dad was sort of reconsidering what he wanted to do you know he had two young kids he was i don't know like late 20s early 30s and basically decided to transition completely so he went back to business school he went back to school in california so we moved to the bay area for a year i did preschool there um he went to business school and then we moved to san antonio after after he got out of his program and we uh lived in his mom's apartment while he looked for work and then he got a job in fort worth and so we moved to fort worth so it was like kingsville australia california san antonio fort worth and that was all before kindergarten so i I did it's a short window yeah so like i moved a ton but i still finished up preschool in fort worth and then spent the rest of my time there until going to college well i guess in a way that was you know it's not like you really probably adjusted to those places totally it's almost like a really long vacation totally yeah and i have like little snapshot memories of each of the places i can't tell you you know tell me about the uh you know what it was like in australia like well um we had possums in our attic and i have a snapshot memory of a you know animal control catching a possum and i had a pair of golf uh plastic golf clubs that i dropped into the ocean and i watched them float away so i have these like (laughs) (laughs) you know weird memories and then i have a couple snapshots from california and then uh like one memory from back in Kingsville when I was really young and then the rest are all in Fort Worth. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, how did it, you know, you're spending your life doing creative things. How, how did that factor into this yeah. sort of busy moving around childhood? You know, I don't know. I, I don't know um, how you'd make a direct connection to, moving around a lot as a very young kid and art, but I, yeah, I was always a kid who drew and coming up through school, I was, I could always draw and I would like win the art award or whatever, you know, the, the year end, uh, uh, class awards. Um, so I don't know, that was just always something that I did, but I wasn't like I grew up hoping to be an artist or thinking I would be an artist. I mean, I was going to school, I was playing sports. I It was kind of, um, I don't know, you're involved in a lot of things. And I, I happened to be good at the art part. Uh, and I got recognition for that and that always felt good, but yeah, I didn't see it as like a larger like existential part of my, you know, personhood <laughs> until, right. Until right. later. Yeah. 
Yeah, because if, and it's another thing is, if you're not really exposed to much of it taking that role in life, like if you have an uncle who's a painter or you go to the museum every month for school or whatever it is, you, you know, it just might be something you do, you know, whereas sports, I'm sure in Texas, I don't know if you played football, but, you know, sports is religion. I'm sitting down, but you can't tell that I'm five, seven and change, uh, Football and basketball didn't go very far for me, but I played. I did. I played all the sports growing up. Uh, you know, like little league baseball, soccer, basketball, football, all that stuff. And then in middle school and high school, I started to uh, latch on to like more obscure sports that I could be good at because no one else cared about them. Like. Right, right. I, like I, I wrestled and I pole vaulted and I played lacrosse in, in <laughs> Texas where lacrosse it. didn't exist. Like it wasn't, I like, didn't grow up in the Northeast where you like grow your hair out and have lacrosse stick when you're five. You were just right, like yeah. weirdos playing in a parking lot. Um, <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Uh, cricket, you played some cricket down there and some <laughs> curling. Uh, yeah, you know, you know, surprisingly, there's not a whole lot of curling down in Texas. No? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't it crazy the first time you ever saw curling on TV and you're like, wait, what? This is just that sport now? Like, like <laughs> yeah, you've got like a flattened bowling ball and some giant toothbrushes and you've frozen over a shuffleboard court. Like, what's... Yeah. Yeah. I know. It's, it seems like a joke at first, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's real. But I, I always were wearing uniforms. The lunge... Um, that like really exaggerated lunge where you slide with the, yeah, whatever yeah. The, the big puck thing yeah. is that always looked really fun. Is it the stone? The stone. Is yeah. It? The guy that the guy yeah. throws a stone, he like glides right. with the stone for a while. Yeah. Right. And then it's, it's elegant. Yeah. It, it's the way I wish I bowled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like I glided down the lane like that and just <laughs> guided it towards the center pin. I'm a terrible bowler and I get, I get made fun of when I bowl. Uh, because I, I just like, I don't know. I don't have technique, but I have that like big dramatic drop, you know, my back leg like drops way out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, you have the kick, the swoop and the kick. Yeah. But then the, you know, to no, to no constructive end, but I, it looks <laughs> like I know what I'm doing. People are like, Ooh, fancy. Like, no gutter. Right yeah, in the gutter. Sure. It's like one of those people who does throughout the they throw out the first pitch of the ball game and they got the big old wind up, like the professional wind up, and it goes right into the third <laughs> row. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the blooper reel. Oh man. So so sports was well, so when you got to high school and there was an inkling of like, okay, what's next? I mean, did you think at that point was art becoming something you were getting more into or was you, what was the so, plan? Like, yeah. So, you know, like I was saying, art was always in the background as this thing that I, I always felt like it was my own and it was different than other kids. You know, my friends would also play sports and, you know, do the kind of high school thing. Uh, and then art was like my special thing. It's like little, behind the scenes superpower or something. Um, yeah. But I didn't really have a category for taking it more seriously than that. I had actually had a great uncle who was an artist. He, um, this guy named Clay McGoy. 
who I didn't realize as a kid that he was like how talented he was. I just knew that he was the quiet uncle who sat in the, or stood in the corner during holiday parties and didn't talk a lot, but he, he was like a professional wildlife watercolor artist and, oh, nice. and was actually, I mean, so he very much, you know, he'd go in and out of having any money or needing you know, help from family. And, um, he, like had a drinking problem for a big part of his life. And I think that a lot of people in the family sort of saw him as this eccentric dude. And so that would have been my only example to be an artist. And it wasn't right. like, Hey, you should be like great uncle clay. Um, but what, what I missed and what everyone else missed is that he was like kind of brilliant. I mean, he, he was definitely, you know, an artist of local and regional repute and, nothing more than that but he he was kind of a big deal down here and was i mean watercolor is hard and he made these beautiful sort of avex looking paintings of quail flying and it was uh he just passed and i've been going through some of his old drawings and he was really good i mean i have some fond memories of talking art with him but um big picture there was no you know there wasn't much precedent for taking art seriously in my family i mean we i had some art books around the house there was my dad was really into frederick remington um and this guy named tom lee who was a kind of texas modernist painter who painted a lot of like ranch scenes um so i was always you know, doing it on my own time, drawing. And when I was like 13, my, my parents were a little wary about, they were always sort of proud of the art awards and everything, but didn't know how seriously to take it. And my mom, to her credit, for Christmas one year, gave me some painting lessons. There was a guy in Fort Worth named, named Ron Tomlinson, who was, who was a painter. Um, and he happened to do lessons also. You would just go to a studio. And that was like, that's where the w- world like completely opened up to me. So I, I know you sometimes ask about art instruction and, and if you had good art teachers. Yeah. Um, my, the art instruction in school was fine some very you know great folks but not like real mentor types um but ron uh was definitely like he was the person that made art seem like more than just you know creating likenesses i remember one of the first times i went to a studio to paint he left to go grab something, which basically meant he left to go smoke like six cigarettes. Uh, <laughs> and so I was just left in the studio flipping through his art books. And, yeah. you know, I'm looking at home, I'm looking at Frederick Remington and uh, whomever. And here is like the first time I'm seeing Lucian Freud or Andre Serrano. Uh, nice. <laughs> and I was just like, 
holy shit, you know, <laughs> what is, you know, my brain kind of cracked open. Um, yeah. And so for the next, for the end of middle school and all through high school, I had my normal high school, like go to class, go to practice, do some homework. And then at like seven or eight at night, I would go to Ron's studio. Ron was basically nocturnal. He would mm-hmm. sleep during the day, wake up in the evening and paint all night. And so what started out as lessons just turned into, I had, I could just go to his studio. And so I would like go get there at seven or seven thirty or something and paint till like three in the morning. Um, yeah. And so all that was happening outside of school. Was it a big studio too? Was it kind of impressive or? Yeah, it was actually. Or I guess maybe just being a studio in that sense. Cause like if you're doing art in high school art class, it's like a room for like fifth period where you go and you draw a little bit and you know, but then yeah, if you totally. go to someone's studio, it's like, wait, this is like, yeah, no, this was a real, this was a real doing this. Yeah. This was a real studio. Like it was pretty big. One of his former students was a guy named, uh, Zach who shared the space with him and they were making these like crazy Zach was making big giant paintings, super thick, like German expressionist, thick, chunky paintings of motorcycles. And then Ron, who was a total art history, uh, fan was doing these big chunky painterly kind of like collage fucked up versions of, uh, Velasquez and Georges de la Tour paintings because we're in Fort Worth. Yeah. We had the Kimball, uh, art museum. So there's, oh, right. he was like doing, uh, he's like remixes of, um, Caravaggio and Velasquez and Latour paintings that were in the collection. And then, and actually, uh, I don't know. If, do you know the painter Cedric Huckabee? I, he was in the studio next to me in graduate school. No way. Okay. Cedric was at Yale when I was there. Yeah. We yeah, were in so the same Cedric class. is from at he's from Texas. He's from Fort Worth or yeah. Arlington. Um and before I was Ron's student, Cedric was Ron's student. Ah, uh, okay. And so yeah. I would come in, I would go into the studio and sometimes Cedric would be storing paintings there and have one of those big chunky portraits. Uh leaning up against the wall, you know, Chuck close style, but with amount of paint, like a lot of, a lot of paint. Yeah. A lot of paint. Those, um, those guys were, yeah, they were, they were laying it on thick. Um, I mean, I definitely, I came out of that time painting. Like it's all about like the thick, chunky brush stroke. That's like carving space. Um, yeah, none of this fake stuff. We need heavy lifting. Yeah. I wonder if that's where that expression came from, laying it on thick. Maybe. They definitely laid it on thick. Yeah, well the more paint you use, the more you the more you have invested, the more you care. Oh man. Yeah, no, <laughs> that was actually a really good lesson. Uh I mean I I go through a lot of paint in the studio and you know, you'll put down a big giant section of cadmium something or other and i know people are like oh, i can't change it you know that was like 70 dollars of paint but growing <laughs> up watching zach and ron and cedric in there uh oh, yeah 
you would see, you know, Zach would put like eight tubes of paint on some canvas and then you come in the next night and it's just like all scraped off and lying on the floor. You know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that That's was, admirable. You know, it's like yeah, it was a good lesson in, uh, you know, not making decisions based on what's like practical or economic. Yeah. Don't be cheap when you're making that uh-huh. art. You gotta, you gotta do what you gotta do. So did that translate did that experience of that exposure translate to you saying, okay, well maybe I want to take this to a different level. Yes and no. I mean, Ron really encouraged me to go to art school. I still felt the, I still didn't, hadn't given myself permission to do that. And, um, it's just like, I need to go study something, um, practical and I'll, I was like promising Ron, like I'll keep painting. Don't worry. Uh, and so I ended up going to school in Virginia, not to art school like Ron had encouraged and cycled through a bunch of different, more practical majors. Um, uh, <laughs> landed on the practical field of theology. Uh, oh, there you go. And then, so. and then kept, uh, and then kept painting on the side the whole time. And then ended up, ended up getting an art degree anyway. Um, so somewhere along the line, uh, through college, some kind of clicked art went from being something that uh, I, I did because I enjoyed it and also had, I had a little bit of chops to something that I felt like I had to do. I felt like I, you know, it was sort of imperative for me to feel right. Right. But that took a minute. So it kind of, it kind of clicked at that point. I mean, you, you know, I would say right after graduation, I made this. Yeah. What kind of work were you making? I mean, was it just school stuff? It was, yeah. I mean, a lot of it was, you know, just school stuff. And then my own, my own work was mostly based in portrait, uh, portraiture, which is not surprising. Yeah. You know, it, if you know Cedric's paintings, we, uh, the human face was like the perfect shape to carve up with, you know, big angular brush strokes. And so I was, I was making portraits of friends, I guess my senior thesis show at UVA, I was painting these kind of colorful painterly portraits. Um, but still, you know, like you're, you're making paintings because, you know, you're either doing the, whatever the still life setup is in class or because you have the deadline of the thesis show or whatever. And then I had a professor that I was really close to at UVA. And after I graduated, like a week after I graduated, I made a portrait of him and it was like the best thing I had made. And it, that felt, um, that was a sort of aha moment. Like, okay, no one's looking over my shoulder. No one cares. No one's asking me to do this. Um, and it just felt like a really natural thing to, go into the studio, make a painting. And so from that point on, I was like, oh, this is, this is me. This is mine. Yeah. That's a big, isn't that a, I haven't thought of that moment, but that's, that that is a big moment. 
when like you're making the decisions. Yeah. And it's almost like you, you're going to cannonball into that pool yourself. No one's going to push you in or force you to do it. That's why I always recommended when people are, you know, ask me what they should do about grad school. I always say, don't go straight through, you know, undergrad to grad school. Some, some people yeah. really make it work and everyone works it out differently. But I know for me, I took like five years off before going back and that was really important to experience what it was like to make work on your own terms for yourself with nobody watching and just figure out, you know, are you doing it because you can, or are you doing it because it's imperative or whatever? Yeah. It depends on the person. Totally. Some people need that time. Some people take that five years and they'll never make art again, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like if they just sure. they could it could they could hit a moment where real life takes over and they're like, well, I just, I gotta make ends meet, so I gotta do this. I don't have a time. studio, so I'm not making art. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then there's some people. I mean, I went straight through, and I could see the value of you know taking a break, how that would be valuable. But I went straight through, and I feel like at the end of it, I knew I knew what to do. You know what I mean? Like I. Yeah. I felt like, yeah, I could have found, uh, I'm sure it would have been informative in other ways in my life, but, you know, I think it, it, it really does depend on the person and their, their setup and how they work and how they feel and, you know, their motivation and all that stuff. At that point, though, when you were graduating undergrad, had you already come to terms with art, like being an ongoing presence in your life? Or were, you already, were you already there? Because I, I sort of had I had to prove myself that, or like give myself permission. I think. Oh yeah, I know. I knew like my scene probably my junior year of undergrad. I knew I was doing it. I was like, okay, yeah. But back then, when you know, I didn't. There wasn't. It's not like there was as much information about the logistics of a career or being. You just said to yourself, "Well, I want to do this. I'll find a way to do it." Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you, I think there was you were able to throw a little more caution in the wind because there wasn't as much info, you know, and <laughs> like, you know, you just, you can just walk a little more blindly. I, yeah. I don't know if this is a good idea or not. Nothing's telling me otherwise. There's no internet. Well, well, no, we had internet. Yeah. Oh, well, I didn't have internet back then, you know, and, uh, I had, you know, like I think about when our bands went on tour, when I drove across the country for fun, we didn't have GPS. We had paper maps. Would you print and out? Like, would you print out uh, MapQuest? Would you go to MapQuest and then just print no, no, out the I, whole thing? I'm that old. We didn't have internet when I did this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost fifty years old. I mean, I you know we when I drove across the country after high school, there was no internet. There were no cell phones. So you had? Did you have the big like, national, big like, spiral bound national map? No, book? we had like maps by state. Yeah. But so you, you cross the state line, like, like entering Delaware, and like, oh shit, get out the Delaware one. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Well, they had bleed over. The maps would, like, if it were Virginia, you'd have a little bit of, you'd have a little bit right, of right, the right, other right, states, right, right. and then you, you could drive. Yeah, but you would have to in, trans into Tennessee and not feel like, you know, past here there be dragons. Right, right. Yeah, but if you get on Route eighty, you could take that thing all the way over. You know, it was, you kept it simple. Yeah, yeah. Way. Yeah. But, but the point being is like you, 
you know, if you don't know that much, like sometimes ignorance lets you be a little more brazen. I'll give you another example. There's this new app called Citizen. Well, it's not new. And it tells you about all the stuff that's going down around you. And like, sometimes it makes me not want to leave my house. (laughs) We, I have the ring, the ring app. And yeah, I have it too. Yeah, I don't know if it's synced up with Citizen or if there's just a similar message function, but you can ping all right. the people in your neighborhood. Right, same deal. It's like, oh, there's three Chihuahuas off leash. Right, be careful out there, folks. <laughs> or like, has anyone seen, um, you know, a gray cat or whatever? Not to mention like car theft reported or. You know, other scarier stuff but yeah it's like right. a constant barrage of uh yeah i mean you you know sometimes ignorance is bliss. It, it it lets you take make decisions that you maybe would have edited out you know like yeah anyways yeah. i mean nowadays totally. like i i think about like taking out student loans and going to school and like you know not having money and just taking like back then it was like well we can offer you this grant and then you also have a loan and it's like okay nowadays like student debt like that cloud is out like people know it's like you're going to be swimming in it for the rest of your life so you know back then it was a little easier to just make those decisions i think but you took time which was good for you yeah i we i stayed in uh virginia um I, I graduated, uh, I was, when I went through UVA, the, the art department was in trailers because they were building this brand new building. And then right after I graduated, they completed the building, uh, and it's big, beautiful, like four floor thing. And so I was still painting and I asked some professors I was still close to like, Hey, you guys have all this space. Can I just camp out in some quiet corner They're like yeah, yeah yeah sure as long as you clean up and so i just freeloaded studio space uh at the new art building um and of course nice. i parked it like right in front of this big window and was making these the paintings <laughs> were getting bigger and bigger and people were like who the hell is this guy he's like not even a student what's exactly. this guy doing here um <laughs> taking up this prime real estate uh and actually that's, I met, um, Liz who would, you know, end up being my wife. She was in the painting department. Um, I was in front of this window making these big portraits and she was like under the painting stacks in this cave. Um, and she had stapled up unstretched canvas on the wall, like floor to ceiling, wall to wall, making these giant oil stick paintings of, cocoons and rhinoceros beetles uh and anyway we we met there and then stayed in virginia for another five years i was i ended up getting a studio and um was kind of working for a like part-time for a publishing company as like an administrative you know go go file the uh like go go reorganize our archives um kind of job and then was painting the studio was mostly supporting the studio by painting portraits of people's grandchildren and springer spaniels Ah, 
Yeah, yeah. Man. And was then, that a good one or was it was it hard? Was it what are you no, it was the worst. It was, it was <laughs> <laughs> Well, some people don't mind it because, you know, like they feel like they can work on their chops and they can get paid for it and there's worse jobs. It is know? that's true. I mean, I was able to, you know, afford a studio rent and pay my apartment um or whatever, you know, house full of eighteen guys. Um and also was able had time to make my own stuff on the side but uh but you know you're painting i mean commissioned portraits it's like no one likes the way they look uh it's hard and so you're it's gotta people are gonna have an issue yeah you know i'm like (laughs) looking at at that point i'm you know lucian freud or whoever is in the back of my mind and i'm painting someone's portrait trying to like you know really dig into the you know like the the, their most human characteristics and they're like oh no like make the human characteristics go away like they don't want to they don't want to see that they you know have a lazy eye or something um so yeah you know i remember like just revising portraits over and over until they looked nearly nothing like the person they're like there you've done it (laughs) yeah it's hard as an artist too because i think when you do commissions or you do things like that it's it's tricky because we are conditioned to want to be so unique in our voice you know oh my god and and then to to have a client i think it, it it kind of that's why it's actually really good if artists can do that sort of thing because if they do have opportunities or when they're working with a special project or collaborating on something, they can actually function like like a civil human who can like collaborate and not be like, oh, I just want it to be my way. Right, they're you know not like, I mean? an, but like it, an angry hard, bear crawling out of their cave. Like they, they know how to <laughs> get along a little bit. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I th- that's all true and I'm grateful for it and that, that afforded me the time to make work on my own and start to show some of that and uh, I'm grateful for it, but it was, man, it was hard. I mean, I always feel, I feel that for like, illustrators and graphic designers where yeah. you, know, you might be an incredibly talented person who has someone, like you have a client on the other end who has a certain set of expectations and regardless of how gifted you are, you're still having to appease those expectations because they're paying the bill. Right. But that's, that's a very like artist centric way to see it oh, because <laughs> like our way is the better way and it's great to have carte blanche, but some, oh some creative people like framework, you know what I mean? They like, being, like being told like, here's the record cover. It's got to look like this and it's got to look like something about outer space. And like, okay, I can do that. And then they just do it. You know what I mean? Some oh yeah. Work really well. Oh, that I, way. I like parameters that whole, like Gustin, you know, freedom within limits or freedom within parameter parameters idea. Um, totally. I'm into like, uh, giving myself a set of rules or a vocabulary of forms or the shape of a canvas or something that, that is more, I feel more freedom when I have some confines to, roam around in as opposed to like imposed yeah yeah. as opposed like walking into the studio like a big vacuum being like what am i going to do today should i you know shave my hair and make a uh, sock puppet out of it or should i 
you know, make a painting. So yeah. I, yeah, the, the rules and parameters thing, totally helpful, but there is a tipping point where those expectations are like someone's making the work for you. Like right. just like I had a, I painted a portrait of this. It was like a university a portrait for some university donor. And the, the person who was whatever paying for this painting, uh, <laughs> there was grass in the painting and it wasn't totally green. You know, there's some like red and orange and I don't know, like impressionist painting, like green grass isn't all green. And so that was kind right. of what was happening in this painting. And the person I remember bringing the painting to them and then he's like, grass is green. Like make the grass green. <laughs> like, well, it is green you know, in the broader sense, you know, I'm trying to talk, right. like, it's figuratively green, you know, like it, it is perceived as green. And he's like, see this little part right here. That needs to be green. That's red. Like, and that's at a certain the point, red flag right there. Yeah. And that's at a certain time point, you're like, it's time to leave the chat. <laughs> yeah, totally. And that's, I think that that's where it's nice not to have those kinds of confines anymore. But the time is like, okay. Um, am I going to, pay my studio rent, buy some paint and buy some stretchers for my own stuff. Okay. I'm going to make this grass green and just there you go. And then call it a day. <laughs> yeah. And then when you get to the studio, you're like, hallelujah. You probably really enjoy the fact that, you know, you're calling the shots and oh yeah. sometimes you just need a little taste of what it's like on the other side to really like hone it. And I think a lot of times not to speak, well, you know, there, I, there's a lot of people who don't have that or don't taste the other side or or maybe have a kind of cushy ride or whatever and then they just don't really want to work hard or they're like, eh, you know what I mean? And when you have to like, you know, like I, working when I was young, I did everything from like painting houses, like up on a 40-foot ladder doing trim on a house or like working for a moving company with like ex-cons and, you know, like just crap jobs, you know what I mean? Man. And, and like you really, when you can do something you like to do, you're like, okay, I'm fine working my ass off on this one. You know what well, I mean? Oh my gosh. My, my favorite, that's funny you said a moving company. I worked for a moving company for like all through high school and most of college in the summers. And Whoa, that's a long, that's a long tenure for a job like that. <laughs> I mean, you know, it, <laughs> like when I was younger, I would like split the, split the summer up and I'd, you know, go to summer camp for a month and then I'd work for the moving company for five weeks or something. Um, yeah. but yeah, man, I, same deal. You know, there was, there was guys there who had some stories. I remember this guy, like we worked at, uh, it was in Dallas and we were moving like, high end homes. It was, it was like a quote unquote white glove moving company. And so, yeah. you know, you're like moving baby grand pianos down spiral staircases um, and then making sure that the Picasso is in the art vault. Um, but, uh, but you know, like you work a hard day, you're really hungry. I remember, um, on lunch break, this guy who can remain nameless was like, Hey man, you want to, you want to go to the tea bar and hit up the buffet? Like, no man, <laughs> you know, like, like, uh, no, I'll just, you know, Chipotle is fine. I'll just, let's <laughs> <laughs> just walk, but, uh, just walk down the street. Yeah. You know, you know, dude's like been working for the moving company for 
15 years after he did you know, 15 years somewhere else. Um, but, uh, but on, in some ways those were, that was my favorite job. I mean, after, right after grad school in New York, I was, uh, working for a rooftop landscaping company. And I mean, I love, I love nothing more than painting, but there's something really satisfying about knowing concretely that a job is done, like the moving company or the landscaping company, you show up in the morning, you are, you know, you're either putting all that stuff on a truck or you're taking all that stuff off a truck and moving it over here. And when the last piece is off the truck, you're done. And then you go home and your body's tired and anything tastes good. You could eat a shoe and then hit the head, hit the bed hard. And there's yeah. nothing really satisfying about Day's that. Days work done. Totally. Yeah, for sure. And wait, you said rooftop landscaping? Yeah. Uh, that sounds awesome. It was, I mean, it actually, you know, in New York, it's magical up there. Man. There's like a whole other world on those roofs. It was, in, it was incredible, actually. There's a bunch of folks who, some folks you might know, um, who it was a kind of a ragtag crew of writers, artists, and actors. Um, I got the job from a friend of mine who was a stage actor. It's a bunch of people mm-hmm. who, you know, don't have steady work. This job was, you know, show up in the morning, you, there was no training. Um, I, mean, I was like, no, I'm not, a, I'm not a green thumb at all. You just show up and you haul a bunch of bags of dirt up to the top of the building. And then, uh, you know, half the stuff would die, but this company also <laughs> did maintenance. So someone calls them like, Hey, all my shrubs are dead. Like, Oh, well we can be there on Thursday to do, you know, maintenance on those shrubs. Um, but yeah, this actor friend got me the job. And then I told some friends, uh, do you know, Caroline Larson, the painter? Yeah. So, yeah she and I went to Pratt together and I told her about it and uh, Oliver, her husband. And so they joined. And so it was like a pretty cool group of folks. And, you know, someone would, you know, leave for like two months because they'd get an acting gig on the Disney cruise line or something. And like, nice, all right, yeah. see you guys in a couple months. Um, they could hop right back in. Totally. It was all cash all under the table. Um, but you got to see, amazing i mean you know you'd be doing someone's penthouse balcony looking over the high line uh it's crazy right and you went from the street you'd have no idea what what's up there it's no it's it's unbelievable so you you get to see how um some folks you know really live it up in new york and you're working outside all day long i mean it was great you know you're in new york city with this outdoor job where you're you know putting in a good hard days work with your hands in the dirt. It was cool. And you probably had a pretty sweet farmer's tan at the end of the summer. (laughs) Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, so grad school and then New York, I mean, what did you, you went straight to New York? I, uh, got out of undergrad, spent five years in Virginia, was painting and showing. I was actually, it was all going really well, but I felt like the work just needed to shed some skin. And so it felt like a good time for grad school and came to Pratt. It was either going to be Pratt or Boston. Um, and I called up 
a friend of mine who had gone to school with uh, Claire Grill, who ended up becoming a close friend. But at the time, I just admired her paintings. And I had, you know, a long phone conversation like, hey, you know, I'm trying to decide between you know, this smaller kind of painting focused program in Boston or Pratt. Um, she was like, no question, come to New York. You know, if only for the excuse to get to New York, just do it. And so that's why I took her advice and I did that. Had a great experience at Pratt um, and then stuck around New York for, I guess, seven years. Was it, um, I mean, because now, you, you know, being back in Texas, um, did it feel nice coming back did you i'm sure it's both a little bit of like coming home but a little bit of missing the city or was it just like thank god i'm out of there no i god i mean you know what it's like in new york where just the hustle and the you know a single day in the city can kind of kick your ass um especially with kids can <laughs> does repeatedly 365 <laughs> days a year Relent, uh, relentlessly, relentlessly <laughs> um while you just try to keep your head above water uh, and also, you know, foster creative juices. Um, yeah, I mean, New York's hard, but we also were totally in love with it. I mean, it, yeah. I kind of felt a ticking clock a little bit. Like, I think our move was COVID accelerated. Um, but it probably, if not for COVID would have been a couple years down the road. Liz, Liz could have stayed forever. Um, I felt like I needed a little bit more space and fresh air. Um, yeah. But at the same time, it wasn't like, I mean, you know, it's like your normal love hate relationship with New York. Like, but you have two kids. Yeah. Yeah. Two boys. And, uh, were they, were they in school? Um, come COVID we had, uh, like a two, almost three year old and then a newborn. Um, and so the old, our older one, Waylon, was in the nanny share. He could have been in preschool, but he was doing a nanny share with some neighborhood kids. Um, and then as soon as we moved to San Antonio, he started going to school at the zoo, at a, at a place called the zoo school. It's like he feeds animals during the day. Whoa. Pretty nice. cool. So Named after Whaling Jennings? Yeah. I mean... I mean, why not? I right? mean, I'd, I don't know any other Waylands. <laughs> we, when we were trying to, right. when we were trying to come up with names, I, I was kind of leaning hard on towns and Liz really liked Hank. Like, Oh shit. Every name we like is a dead country and Western singer. And then we kind of started riffing on like, <laughs> what if we named him Merle? Ha ha ha. What if we named him Waylon? Ha ha ha. And then we kind of like, actually, Wait, Waylon that works. Works. And then we, never got off it nice yeah well yeah i mean i guess that's you know those ages are a little maybe easier to move because they're right you know, we weren't we weren't clamped on to anything yeah we really weren't fully. ripping them away from anything they'd clamped onto. that's right so yeah they're four right. and two now um but it's still hard to leave i mean you know in some ways it's like it was so funny i was just in new york the last two days and I walked, I was in Chelsea seeing shows and I walked by a guy talking to a mailman. The guy's just like eating a bagel, talking to the mailman at the, at the, um, you know, 
Dropbox. Like this guy's trying to do his job and this yeah. guy's just like yapping in his ear like, yeah, you know, I could leave New York anytime. You know, I'm like, I just got to get the fuck out of here. You know, but I love it. But I got to get out of here. I'm like, that's it. That's like. Yeah, that's the sentiment. You've had that conversation a thousand times. Like, oh, we, you know, we're really talking about moving upstate, but uh, I don't know. Like the FOMO is too strong. Right. So, it's real though. I mean, you know, the culture of it is nice, you know. I, and I love it. We it, miss it all the it's time. It's a two-sided coin. You know, it's like if you go out to the country, you're going to feel much more relaxed. You're going to be able to breathe and exhale. And a week later, you're going to be like, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> I <laughs> need something to do. <laughs> no, that's right. I mean, because I... when you've been in New York for a while, you the that energy is, in. you know, it's it's awful. It, like it, it sort of stresses you and breaks you down inside, but you get used to that energy. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, exercising. If you do it every day, like it, if you run like 20 miles a day, you're going to be tired, but, but your body gets used to it. So the idea of just laying on the couch the whole day, great the first day, week two, you're like, what am I doing? That's you know? totally, that's a hundred percent true. I mean, I, I tell people the reasons we like San Antonio and that actually really, grown to love San Antonio uh, are different than the reasons we've missed New York, right? Like yeah. San Antonio does something for you that New York doesn't, but New York does something for you that nowhere else in the world does for you. I mean, I, right. uh, you know, I was like calling Liz from uh, Faux Grand um, down in uh, Lower East Side, like eating at our favorite pho spot and then, you know, going and getting a Negroni at, you know, a favorite bar and seeing a bunch of art. And I mean, yeah, we, it's great. We kind of, we came up for, we hadn't been in a year and then we came back for the armory show a few weeks ago after not being there for a year. And it just felt so good being back in the city. So we're trying to figure out how we can be there as much as possible. So like I had, um, I had this little group show thing, um, this week and I'm like, well, there's an excuse. I'm coming. Right. So we'll try to be and, there as much the, as possible. There's that adage that if you're not there all the time, when you do go, you really make the most of it. Oh yeah. You'll be able to really oh, I packed it. it in. I got my steps in. Yeah. That's good. So, um, I guess we could talk about your art. <laughs> <laughs> there's that too. Yeah. Well, when, so when you, okay, let me ask a very specific question. Okay. When you got out of grad school, what did the first painting you did out of grad school look like? And how did that go from there to where you are today? And you just opened a show, didn't you? I, so I have, I have some work in a group show. Um, that, yeah. But, um, but I was in, I was in New York for the Armory. Um, I did a booth at the Armory show and that was, I saw it. that was a big, uh, Oh, you, oh, you saw it. Yeah. I went to the yeah. Javits. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I did see your boot. That was, what was that section called? Well, it looked um, like statements we, or I don't even know. I know that it was right There's next to the it. solo section, but we, yeah, it was a solo booth, but we were not part of the quote unquote solo section. So right. whatever the other one was. Um, yeah. So I, I came into grad, came to Pratt making, decidedly figurative work yeah. um, kind of photo based figurative painting. And then the first part of grad school, the photos kind of dropped out and they became more sort of Marsden Hartley inspired 
kind of stylized wonky figurative painting um <laughs> would have fit in great today uh and then the figures there's kind of a long circuitous route where the figures were always kind of frontal and central and iconographic and but what the figure was kept shifting so there was like cowboys for a bit and then there was birds and then skulls and then bottles and um i did this painting of a bottle over the summer between my first and second year in grad school and it it really really, really nice painting it really felt like it worked and i went to make another one like oh let's let's try to make lightning strike there again and it just felt dumb and the bottle felt like a total plug-in um like i was just painting with my mind off um and so i painted it out just got rid of it and accidentally finished the painting the the, the big redacted bottle felt like it finished the painting the, the subject became that space and so so the second year of grad school became about I mean, not by design, just by just how the paintings changed. They became about trying to frame, like construct a frame around that central space and uh, try to build a sense of, you know, charge, like a sense of fullness for that you know, otherwise empty space. And then when the paintings became about framing the space, that's when all the architecture kind of flooded in. Um, and I, you, know, you walk around New York and you're just surrounded by, you know, really interesting architectural forms and brickwork. Yeah. And um, so the first painting, I went and got a studio in Bushwick, right next to Caroline, actually. Uh, we shared a wall. And uh, I don't know what it was, but it was definitely, I don't know what the first painting was, but it was playing off this idea of trying to kind of construct a stage within the, within the canvas. And then when I moved to the Navy yard, a lot of the kind of arched brickwork started to play more heavily into the work. Did you, so it, it was kind of a product of the environment in a way, but I mean, it, obviously the, the language of abstraction is, being played out through these spaces you know what i mean so the yeah. the color the formal elements and you know with the way that you're using the canvas itself you know there's a lot of play there with abstraction i mean that seems like you know if you go from figurative work for a long time of like working out playing with maybe abstraction or the way the formal elements of of paint works with the figure and then being able to free that up in, into just abstraction in general do you feel like you always kind of like hitch it to something representational in a way and that allows you to explore abstraction in a more i don't want to say concrete way but in something that references you know environment i think that's a i think that's the right question i the figurative work seemed natural to me but i always i grew up in fort worth and the fort worth modern is just down the street and there's these great paintings by you know ellsworth kelly and you know 
Morris Lewis and Ken Noland. And I always loved the big, like embodied experience of a painting and was always kind of seduced by the you know, big fields of color and uh, just really digging into what happens when this color is next to this color and whatever. Um, and felt like I was always having to work that out in the figurative work. And so, you know, you'd be, the figurative work would have its own kind of subject matter and content, but then you know, I would always nerd out on this little piece of the painting. Like, yeah, but look at how that Viridian's next to this, uh, you know, Naples yellow. Uh, and just didn't have a, I don't know how to bridge that. And then when the paintings just kind of slipped accidentally into abstraction, like, oh, then all of a sudden those earlier questions found, a, or those earlier, you know, attractions like found a, a home, um, you know, playing around with scale and playing around with size. Um, yeah. But then, like you said, I couldn't just go full on, you know, monochrome. It was like, I still wanted the paintings to feel like they're rooted in the physical world um that they're somehow connected to people and connected to bodies and um not just like a disembodied sublime color field space where you're like you know floating in a sea of orange or something um but you know like it was a part of the room where you're in um and and somehow like giving the paintings a sense of light or space you know made them feel grounded or something yeah how much would you say the painting at this point since you developed this kind of language of uh -huh. you know formal elements within the paintings mm -hmm. and then kind of like is it getting pretty self-referential where you're making tweaks and adjustments based on like the painting before and that shape before and is it becoming its own kind of language are you still really kind of like keyed up to the the physical environment and letting those kind of things like even when we're talking now there's all this reflected light that keeps uh -huh. flickering by yeah. you and onto the drawings and i'm thinking like oh if he's spending time in the studio all day and there's that kind of light happening that's probably gonna you know or could seep his way oh totally i mean there's i have uh horizontal well, i have like blinds in here and they'll cast yeah at a certain point of day they'll cast uh you know, horizontal striations across the canvases. And sometimes you're like, well, that's a more interesting move than what I've got going on. Um, there's an edge. Yeah, yeah. There's an idea. <laughs> so it's, it's definitely both. I mean, I think that things, the way that the paintings got here was through drawings, um, which before undergrad, I didn't have any kind of a drawing practice. And then it just became really important uh, in grad school. Um, and so, yeah, so I'd like, see something out there, you know, see some interesting building facade or, or come across some, you know, an interesting vignette of a, a you know, part of a CNE's painting or some Byzantine icon or something. And then just explicitly pull that form and it would wind up in the drawings. But then once it was in the drawings, it just became a part of this, you know, just got added to this vocabulary of forms that get kind of reordered you know, the syntax gets changed around. And like, if there's this, you know, there's a fan shape that shows up in some of these drawings and paintings. And um, 
it might get, you know, it might be locked right at the top of the painting in a couple pieces. And then it might get, you know, switched around and turned upside down and turned sideways and, or show up in some different place. So all to say, there's, there's still a lot of external input, like stuff's always coming in from outside, but it's being added to this big pot of, uh, you know, ingredients that are just being stirred around on the inside. Um, yeah. So yeah, whatever long, it's long way, long way of saying there is a lot of internal reference for sure. If something happens in painting and you're like, Oh, I could kind of take that break it apart and repurpose it somewhere else in another painting. Um, and they start to, I like to work on paintings more than one at a time so that if something interesting happens in one, it can kind of inform another and that's right. definitely an internal thing, but then it might get stale in here. Um, you know, you start feeling like you're just reaching for the same move over and over. And then you, you know, drive down a street you haven't driven down yet and see some, you know, really interesting something out there. And it, sparks a bunch of drawings and then winds up helping you resolve the painting. Yeah. It could be like a shape or, you know, whatever to yeah. something you bump into, you know, I mean, I feel like, you know, like in my work, I work pretty representationally, you know, I'm, yeah, yeah. but I'm constantly looking and I, I feel like travel sometimes does that where, yeah. you know, if I'm, if I'm just really interested in like certain landscapes or, you know, the sky or something, the yeah. sky is pretty universal. But then like, if I go to, you know, California and I see a sunset or, you know, if I'm, you know, in Asia or Europe, it's so different. Like that feeling, it can kind of recalibrate the way that you think about, you know, your painting language, you know? Oh man. I mean, I've got a, I've got a big folder in my phone of photos that just labeled ideas and it's yeah. anything from you know, buildings that were you know, nearby in the Navy yard um, or textiles that I've run into like in books or, or out and about um, other art, plenty of other art. Um, there's pictures that I've taken. There's these three pictures in particular. I was having breakfast at some or brunch or something. And Liz and I were sitting across from each other. And there was a woman behind Liz that had this like forest green shirt on. And the back of it had this little embroidered flower in blue that had a red center. And it was like this perfect little color moment. I was like, all right, Liz, just bear with me here. I need you to act yeah. like I'm taking a picture of you so I can zoom in <laughs> past you to get a picture of this woman's shoulder without getting kicked out of the restaurant. Uh, and so like you stealthy. Know, yeah. Creepy. Uh, but that kind of thing, like, you know, just some little snippet on the world where, you know, I can come back to the studio and be like, all right, that the way that blue and that red sat in that green did something really interesting. Um, and more often than not, you know, you try it in a painting and it doesn't work. Uh, yeah. and then 10 years later, it like, you know, cracks the code Comes on out. some other painting. Right. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask too, because you know, there is, there does seem to be naturally like our go-to of representation of like, like we were talking about at the beginning with doors or windows and stuff like that, yeah. or gates or, you know, 
there's that. And then I was thinking about color and I was like, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of color relation. Like color can make you just think of certain, like certain palettes make you think of certain things. And it's funny that you mentioned that thing on the shirt because I was going to, to ask about, you know, like I, I think about like the, the drawings that are up on your wall that are kind of like a warmer tone remind me of some of the palettes of like Miu Miu, like the fashion brand, like some of their stuff. You know, my wife used to work for, for Prada and I would see that stuff. It has a very specific color palette, you know, and I was wondering like if fashion or other, you know, other sort of like more pop things are bleeding into your palette or is it all sort of like intuitive? Um, well, I mean, intuitive it's intuitive, but I'm, of course, like your intuition is informed by the stuff that you're absorbing. Right, right, right. Right, Yeah. I'm not like, you know, in a, uh, in a vacuum coming up with ideas. Um, I don't know if fashion in particular is, but I mean, I'm not, I have a pretty diplomatic, I mean, a democratic taste when it comes to color and what kind of things are interesting. I mean, I, um, yeah, it's funny. I wouldn't. I wouldn't know Mumu's. Uh, like, what makes that a Mumu-ish kind of warm palette? Oh yeah, um, it's a certain things. But, but you can imagine, like a Masoni show. Like, if you were sitting at a Masoni fashion show and all those colors and stripes were like rolling by you, you'd probably be like, "Oh yeah, like." Oh, I, totally. Like yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I think I don't know where all the color sense comes from, but I do know that there's something about like letting earthy or ruddier colors hang out next to really super saturated, bright, you know, colorful colors does something for me. Um, like I like a funky green Brown next to like a something hot and sizzling. Um, isn't it funny how color just you, we just have inclinations or something, or it just comes from within, you know, you know, it's it's funny. I'm like, and, and color is just so subjective. I mean, I never allow, I, for the longest time, even though the paintings will repeat forms, I wouldn't let myself repeat an act like a, an actual composition. um, Right. There'd be some kind of change. Um, maybe this one has six little niches and then the other one has nine or something, but, uh, this one painting came out and it just really worked. I really liked how the structure worked and I was like, whatever, I'm the boss. I can make another one. And so I made another one, but with a totally different palette and it just like completely different painting. I mean, that totally different sensibility, uh, different temperature, different attitude, whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think colors, a huge part of the painting and a, a huge part of how I connect to other objects in the world and also totally personal. Like, you know, there's some, I'm trying to think of a, like, I love, I think Eric Parker's a great painter and he has a very specific color sense and it's not my color sense. Like I would, yeah, you know, it's a rigid, it's total, it feels like him, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. I have like total respect for that. But I don't see that color and be like, oh, yeah, like, you know, start to, you know, lick my chops. But then I just went to the Ron Gorchoff show um, at Vita Schnabel and something about 
his approach to color felt way more um well definitely made me lick my chops i mean i was just like totally usable (laughs) yeah i mean i was just more direct influence or just like yeah um well that's what's dangerous you're like you know it falls more in the category of like paintings i wish i made like ah shit that's a good one right um well color though it's like color combinations i don't think people really yeah, you know, yeah. we're all taking from from what we see. Oh, totally. Way, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's the, you, you. No one owns color com. Well, I mean, if your work is minimal abstraction and you're making, you know, Barnett Newman or something, or or Rothko, and it's like that. But otherwise, that I mean, Eve, you know, that Eve Klein guy kind of, really called dibs on that blue fast. He got it. I know he nailed it. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll like. I guess it's easier to look at a Frangelico painting and see some know red foot sitting in a green grass and just pluck that like boom taking that um which is feels a little different than like saw that painting in chelsea yesterday boom taking that but i hear you yeah it's 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 all up for grabs right yeah yeah that's true that's true with color color is so it's fascinating it's kind of like sounds speaking which what so are you a, a a silent studio guy? Do you like? Are you putting on Bob Wills or Merle Merle Haggard? Oh, Merle Haggard. Um, I I'm a music to start a painting and podcast to get through those middle sections painter. That's specific. So that's a, that's if specific I'm pace. yeah, if I'm starting something, it is I have some go tos and then then I kind of go into podcasts and books on tape um (laughs) a lot of like sad country and country adjacent stuff like anything jason molina um don't know jason molina you know song songs ohio and magnolia electric company he's a oh okay um yeah yeah and that's kind of like really depressing ohio country-ish stuff and then like bonnie prince billy I was um, gonna say, do you like Will Oldham? Because that's kind of like, yeah. you know, Palace Brothers was like the way that I was able to listen to some country, you know. Totally. Although I don't know if that's like true country. Well, he's it's probably not. I mean, basically, is though. Like, I, it seems more country than country in a way. It's like almost more earnestly. Yeah. Uh, country values, or something. I mean, I grew you know up. What I'm saying like country's gotten pop. Totally. I mean that. Yeah. Like listen to Will Oldham or Jason Molina or something is a way to get back into like more honest country. I mean, to get back to, you know, something like Bob Wills or Towns Van Zandt or um, Willis Allen Ramsey or something like that. Um, I mean, I, I grew up listening to a ton of stuff. My, at, at the house at home, it was, uh, my parents weren't out there trying to have eclectic taste or anything. They just, like to listen to what they like to listen to but it was a bunch of al green the gypsy kings um bonnie Raitt, uh and then like you know shania twain and and whatever (laughs) uh so and then in high school good old country though right huh there's a lot of good alt country stuff. 
Oh yeah, and now now country's kind of like cool again. Right. Everyone's throwing. A well, little... you got the crossover stuff too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's everyone's throwing in a little lap steel, um, just to like get the feels going. That's a beautiful instrument. Oh man, I'm speaking not... of which was uh was Speedy West from San Antonio? No, probably not. I don't know. I don't know that. I wonder if there were some famous uh, of that kind of like you know pedal steel that was so fast it sounds like warner brother cartoons oh man yeah stuff. yeah yeah almost like a, it's like jazzy you know yeah, it's like, but yeah, it's yeah. like yep but really cool like inventive styles of playing of, i mean wasn't uh, um would you say that robert randolph kind of plays around with that that like real fast steel yeah yeah it is good stuff yeah um um so podcasts bring it home for you yeah, you know, for a long time, I was just an absolute podcast head, uh, but, you know, pretty boring stuff. And then lately, it's been more books on tape. Yeah. I like to listen to interview podcasts. I'll, I'll listen to like, you know, I have a couple news podcasts and then I'll listen to Terry Gross or something. Um, yeah. But you know, it's, it's like nice to, I guess when I'm starting a painting, you want to have like full presence. I mean, sometimes in the middle of, painting, middle of a painting, it's kind of nice to turn it down a little bit and just let your hand do its thing. Yeah. Nice. Um, um yeah. well, so, and what are you working on now? So you just had this group show that went up. You had that, I mean, that booth at, the fair looked really good. It was great. Thanks. It was, it's really nice. Sometimes, well, I don't want to, sometimes the solo booth thing, you know, works. Sometimes it doesn't. I feel like yours worked. Thanks. <laughs> it's good. I mean, a, a lot of, uh, I mean, that's just a big gesture of generosity from Sebastian over at Sorry We're Closed, um, the gallery who did the booth. You know, a lot of, a lot of times, a gallery steps out and pays for this expensive booth. And they're like, well, we're going to bring five artists and cover our bases and have a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And it was, it felt like a, a cool opportunity to get to take the space and you know make it my own. So I made the work knowing what the booth layout was going to be. Um, and yeah, I was just really, really, really glad to be back in the city, glad to be showing some stuff in the city. Um, yeah, that was really fun. I saw a bunch of friends. I just, that was such an awesome trip. And you ate Vietnamese food or maybe that was the most recent one. Yeah, no, we did. The first thing we did when we got to our Airbnb is I went and picked up Indian from our favorite old Indian spot. We, we got an Airbnb in our old neighborhood and then a bottle of wine and sat on the roof and just listened to people honk at each other and wanted to cry. It's so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> I miss this so much. Wait, was the Indian food in Brooklyn or was it in Manhattan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, in Clinton Hill. It's in Brooklyn. Yeah. There's, oh, there's a place called know. Spice and Grill on Waver Myrtle and Waverly. It's really good. I need a good hookup. I feel like some of the stuff nearby me, it's okay. It's serviceable, but I yeah. need the good hookup. And I can't pretend to be an expert. I know that to me, it's it's hard to beat. I'll take it. It's like, like a couple blocks from Pratt. Okay. Yeah. Nice. The old stomping grounds. Yeah, exactly. 
that was fun bumping into people uh like hey how's it going you know people like covid like hey how's it going long time no see like what's yeah. new like well i moved away i don't live here anymore that's happening a lot uh-huh. yeah it's that's not like a rare you know that's like more of a conversation of like yeah oh we're or, or sometimes you just don't even know. Someone's like, oh, yeah, they went to Idaho. You didn't hear? Yeah, they've been it's in, like, in oh, Idaho well, for years. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. It's like they, their yard's huge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely different. Yeah. Space, right? That was the COVID. That was the real test for me was the space part of it. Did and anything, being, like, anything change? Up. Did you have any like big life changes in COVID? A significant increase, surprisingly, in gray hair, I noticed. <laughs> real uptick yeah <laughs> at least you have hair um, to turn gray yeah well yeah I, that's true i should look on the bright side um no i mean everything changed and things are kind of the same do you know what i mean yeah it's like this bizarre kind of like parallel universe where it's kind of like things kind of got back to normal but everything's just you know it's like different yeah i don't know how to explain it but um you know i think that's the thing to your point it's like, at least we have everything, even if it's augmented or there's this feeling of whatever, you're just happy that, you know, you have the opportunity to do whatever you're doing. So to me, that's like, you know, it's, it's kind of one of those things that makes you appreciate, you know, the little things for oh, a few minutes. And then someone's got road rage on, you know, on Broadway and, and honking at you and you're like, you forget about that. Like thing. shouting at a flight attendant. Yeah, like remember when it was so great when no one was on the street and you could get into Manhattan in two minutes, right? And <laughs> the good old days. Walk across the lockdown Times Square without someone trying to put a pamphlet in your face. Exactly, or yeah. like you know, getting dry humped by a guy in a Cookie Monster outfit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, remember those days? Actually, yeah. I think those guys were those still days. out there <laughs> because I looked at the. I had an animation that was up in Times Square during COVID. Yeah, I saw like that. it. It op- It opened right before, and so I remember like trying to access Times Square camps to see if I could see it on the camera because no one's going anywhere. And, and uh, blue like, was, like furry crotch in front of the camera. <laughs> there was there was no one in Times Square save like two or three people walking, and then there was like a group of those guys just like yeah. hanging out, like you know, just you could smell them through the camera, it was, like, dirty, and like they were just hanging out, like waiting to just like loiter pack, and pack uh, of wild dogs. <laughs> Yeah, it's there's certain aspects of of New York in the past few years that have just, you know, been left to, to go. So well, it is what it is. Yeah, yeah. It's we're just we're happy that like I went into Chelsea the other day and went to the galleries and saw some art and it just you know that right there for me is is enough. You know, thankful oh, for that. It felt, being there this week, it felt like there was a ton of great stuff up, and I know that, you know, we were in New York. When it, when it really, when the hammer really dropped. Um, but we've been gone for a year and I can't, I can't pretend to know all the different stresses that people went through, but um, coming back after a year felt like, shoot, it feels good. It feels like the city. Yeah. Um, yeah, man, it was such a, I felt like there's a lot of good stuff up right now. Yeah, people, I, that's the one thing that didn't change over COVID. People are still making work and, and got deep into it, which is, you know, I guess it's natural, you know, you, you, you well, try that was to that, find solace in, in that activity, you know? Well, that the cruel irony that a lot of artists feel like they had their most productive 
you know, season for a long time. Yeah. Just being I think up. historically that's been the case, yeah. you know, in times of, of real struggle or strife, you know, it brings out some creative fire in people. Not everyone, of course, obviously it's, it, it people who are on the fence or who aren't like, you know, set up, they could fall yeah. by yeah. the ways. It's kind of like, you know, like if you look at restaurants, like those who were on the verge, a lot of them closed, you know, yeah. but the ones that stuck it out, maybe had a little more fire in their belly or something. Yeah. I know that's the diehard optimist in me thinking yeah. that, you know, if, if life gives you a turd, you try to polish the turd. <laughs> Is that, can we quote that? Yeah. And I think that, that I think that there are artists who came out of, uh, out of COVID with a big heaping pile of polished turds. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, good for them. And, and we're trying to hawk those at our white cube. <laughs> <laughs> Come see my polished turds. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you're welcome for your next show title. It's it's okay. You don't have to credit me on it. Well, just like uh, <laughs> Matt Clayberg, semicolon, polished turd. It's got a ring to it. Yeah. <laughs> sort of self-referential. <laughs> Has some inside and outside influence. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy, I, I see a video piece involving curling. Man, let me do that. I would just like to try. I mean, it would be fun. Oh. Um, all right, I've kept you long enough, haven't I? We've talked about now we're talking about polishing turds and <laughs> skipping them down the ice. So, <laughs> well, um, and, and do you have? Are you working on it? Do you have any dates lined up or anything that you want to plug as far as like where people can see the stuff in? real life not on i mean and they should look at it on the internet yeah well don't go to my website um no it's Instagram, a it's an unpolished it. turd um <laughs> uh <laughs> i do i don't even think artists have websites anymore instagram has kind of become yeah, the place for updates and whatever um yeah, definitely yeah except I, for the five hours when it shut down then they go to your website wasn't so. that yeah god my head was so clear that day I was really impressed myself that I didn't even notice. <laughs> really? I was just busy. Yeah, oh, I just man. came. Congratulations. I came to it and s I saw people talking about how it was offline. You but didn't have beads of a, sweat coming off your forehead like anxiety. When's it going to come back thumbs. on? Yeah. Yeah, you started to get <laughs> yeah, that itch. I, uh, I didn't. Uh, I've got a show in Texas um, in March and um, more details coming soon. And then there's some stuff in the works that are kind of not solid enough to throw out there yet, but um, right. hopefully some. But Instagram will be where you'll tell people where to go see it. Yes. Yeah. Um, unless, unless the almighty Zuck decides that. To shut that, it down. To shut it down. Yeah. You better polish that website just in case yeah um yeah instagram where it's you can just find your it. your your handle is just your name yeah san antonio yeah, it was, rose it's, it's, at it's, san antonio rose. <laughs> formerly new york now yeah uh yeah i no longer have the like cachet of the new york based artist but now people can picture me wearing a cowboy hat and riding a horse to my studio that's way more exotic and yeah. interesting yeah than bored and tired new york artist i mean come on that's a, that's a cliche at this point <laughs> yeah. 
exactly. making things happen down there. Yeah. That is an impressive drawing wall too. It's very nice to look at. Oh, it, it just keeps going too. Oh, nice. Oh, it's, the space. Yeah. I just have to have my brain. Wow, that, is, that is a lot of drawing. Nice. Yeah. yeah I've I'm, got two like, tiny little, well, I'm not in a studio. I'm in my podcast, like a home studio, but mine pales in comparison. I got to get to work. <laughs> well, here's, <laughs> and here's, you can see a couple things in the works here. Ah, there you go. But well, everyone who can't see, it looks good. You don't know what you're missing. Take Brian's word for it. Maybe they can hit you up on Zoom. Can we do an open Zoom link where people can just hear live stream. I'll get the I'll get the right <laughs> dongle and we can we can set it up. <laughs> All right, man. Thanks it was for great to talk to you, man. Thanks, man. For doing thanks it. for doing this. Yeah, um, it's been fun listening to friends and strangers on the podcast for a long time, and. Uh, fun to fun to talk to you likewise thank you sound and vision is recorded edited and produced by myself brian alfred you can find out more about the podcast by going to soundvisionpodcast.com you can rate and review it on itunes and you can check out images at Instagram, at Sound of Vision Podcast. You can find out more about my work at brianalfred.net. I have a solo show that just opened in Tokyo at Maho Kubota Gallery called New World. You probably can't get there if you're not based there, but you can check it out online. Also did a mural in Aoyama on the occasion, so that will be up for a long time. You can also check out my work at Instagram um, at Alfred Studio. Many thanks to the New York Studio School. Make sure you check out their marathon programs, nyss.org. Thanks to Fulcrum Coffee for caffeinating me for these. It's really important for me to make sure that I'm fully caffeinated. Uh, many thanks also to Golden Paints for their long withstanding sponsorship of the podcast and keeping it happening in the studio because I'm working nonstop right now for my upcoming show at Miles McHenry Gallery in March and Golden's making it happen in the studio. Many thanks to Michael Lovett for the intro, Brigine for the intro outro music, Matt for taking the time out to talk to me, and for all of you for listening each week. And you made it all the way to the end, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you.